You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Tonight, uh, we, we have a standalone sermon, and we're going to be in James chapter 5. If you want to turn there, we're going to read verses 14 through 20 in just a minute. But I want to start by painting a picture of the context for tonight. So fun, uh, maybe surprising fact about me is that when I start out in college, uh, well, I changed my major five times, but my first major, uh, my first major uh, was... Engineering. I'm glad Cam thought that was funny, at least. Uh, that was appropriate to laugh at. Five times is a lot in four years. I graduated on time. But my first major was engineering. I spent a year uh, taking calculus classes and physics classes. I, I chose that major because I like to fix things and make things. I'm pretty good at math. Um, and one of the things that really caused me to shift out of that was that I had a really unhelpful conversation with a professor where he basically... Uh, told me I'd sit in a room and solve problems the rest of my life uh, by myself. I thought, that sounds miserable. I love people. At that point, I had been really discerning and called to ministry already. And so I was like, well, maybe communication studies or something like that would be a better fit. But the point of that story is I love science. I like math. I like physics. I like seeing how the world works. And I think science is a great gift that we have. And so I just want to say that up front. I think one of the challenging things about the worldview that we live in is that science has given us so much understanding about how the material world works that it's unnecessarily, I think sometimes unhelpfully separated the material and the spiritual. And so tonight, the context of James is one in which we are seeing James write to a culture that's very different than ours. Very similar in some ways, but very different in the way that they don't have this kind of secular mindset in some ways of just naturalism and materialism where the world kind of works in these beautiful but regulatory principles. They understood the physical and the spiritual to be deeply intermeshed and intertwined. So I just want to be careful on the front end. Later I'm going to say this. I love science. I love modern medicine. I'm very grateful for them. And in no way am I trying to diminish their value or their importance. And my wife would not be here with me if it wasn't for Modern Medicine. She probably would not have made it through either one of our, uh, the births of our children. And so I'm grateful for that. It's a gift. We should utilize it. No buts. What I do want us to see is that just because Modern Medicine and Modern Science gives us a great and robust understanding of the way the physical world works, what this text tells us about prayer is that God in this spiritual realm that we don't see with our eyes, but is clearly present also interacts with this material world. It has real life present implications, not just for how we think, but for how we live, for healing, for wholeness, for health. So it's with this kind of integrated, mystical mindset that I want us to read this text. So if you'll follow along with me in James chapter five, verses 14 through 20. James is writing to a group of churches that he has been a pastoral voice in, And he ends talking about the prayer of faith. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? 
let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a natural, with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. So what I want us to do tonight is to see what this text practically tells us about the relationship between prayer, confession, and healing. Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. That's at the central point of our faith. That at the cross, through his death and his resurrection, he paid the price for sin and he demonstrated his power over death. So it's in this mindset that we see that James encourages prayer in every part of life. Pray, pray. Pray, he says. So the first thing he says is, are you troubled? Are you suffering? Is life difficult? Pray. In suffering, in sickness, in difficulty, do we go to the Lord in prayer? And is it kind of just a, a tangential prayer? Is it a, Lord, please help me? That, that's great. Are we going to the Lord in prayer at the end of our ropes? Are we doing it throughout our suffering and darkness. So we see this picture of prayer being really fruitful for the apostles. Peter's imprisoned and he prays and he prays. And we don't know how long he prayed, but he prayed and he worshiped God. And at some point, God moved. God responded to his prayer. The prison shook. The doors opened. At the very beginning in the book of Acts, the church is birthed and they're proclaiming the good news of Jesus and there's persecution that rises up and they don't come up with a great system or a plan. Maybe they did actually, we don't know that, but that's not what's recorded. What's recorded is that they prayed and their trouble and their suffering and their difficulty and their anxiety and in their fears, they prayed and they prayed and they cried out to God and they prayed more and God spoke, God moved, God delivered. So we see a rhythm of us calling upon the powerful, almighty, holds all things into his hands, God, and he interacts. Now we know he doesn't always respond to that prayer. Paul is suffering as a thorn in his flesh. It says three times he cried out to God. And God saw fit not to remove it. So a lot of questions we have about that. But what we do know is that Paul was faithful to pray. In fact, he was faithful to pray and that wasn't removed. And he was faithful to pray and it wasn't removed. In fact, he prayed until God made it clear that he was not going to remove this thorn in the flesh. God is eager to work in our midst and to participate with us. 
And prayer is the means to which he does that. And I wanna recognize that there are many of you here in this room tonight that are suffering currently, that have suffered deeply before, who are facing sickness and illness now, have lost loved ones to sickness and illness and the brokenness of the world. And what this text is not saying is that if you had just done better, things would have been different. I want you to hear that. This text, I think, has a lot of powerful things for us, and it also has a lot of opportunities that the enemy is eager to distort to cause pain and sorrow and deception in your life. So do better is not something you should hear tonight. It's actually not the narrative of Jesus. But there is an invitation here. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so he calls us, he invites us to pray to him, to ask him for things, to cry out to him, Abba, Father. So we pray for him in our suffering. The next thing it says is we pray to him when we're happy. Is anyone cheerful, James says. And I love this because maybe in the suffering situation, you think, well, yeah, Dustin, that's what we do when I'm desperate, when I'm overwhelmed, we cry out to God. Even people who don't follow Jesus in their desperation cry out to him at times. But are we praising God in the good things? The picture here, I think that James is encouraging us to live out is one of regular calling out to the Lord. When things are hard and when things are good. I'm guilty often of seeing how my works, my good effort, my skills have brought me good things. And I can be deceived at times to think that that's the reason I have them. But what the scriptures tell us is that God is the author of all good things. Are we giving him praise in Thanksgiving? Are we recognizing that on a regular basis? When we enjoy life, is it to that end of enjoyment or is it a means of worshiping and giving thanks to God? So James is painting a picture of how we should live, how we should engage the Lord in prayer as he's wrapping up this letter. He says, pray when you're suffering. Pray when you're happy, when things are good. And these are practical steps. When you're dining with people and it's a feast, we pray and we give thanks. When we get a new job, we pray and give thanks. When something sweet is happening, maybe the next moment you're just caught up in delight, stop and give thanks to God. But we see that we're called to some situation and we pray, suffering, prayer, Joy in thanksgiving, prayer. But the next thing that James says is when you are sick, he doesn't actually say pray. He says, when you are sick, get others to pray for you. I think that's really important. We can spend a lot of our time talking about healing tonight. God delivers us from sickness, both physical and spiritual. And he does so in the community, in the body of Christ. Almost every instance of healing that we see in the New Testament is one in which other people are involved. Where people are praying for others. People are 
that there's just really very few stories where someone's praying in isolation for healing and that healing comes upon them in that isolation. And I think that's intentional because we are not meant to leave this, live this journey of faith alone. We live in an extremely individualistic culture. I, I, I think it's often hard for us to conceptualize how individualized our worldview is compared to the history of humanity, compared to what the scriptures lay out. But we, I've, I've grown up hearing things like, faith is a private matter. It's something you do on your own. You, know, you don't bother other people with your faith and you don't ask other people about their faith. Those are things that I heard growing up in the church, but that's not what the scriptures say. Faith is actually a public matter. It's something that we live in community with one another. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity. The scriptures don't say, bear with yourself. The scriptures don't say, weep alone. But I, I do that. I just wanna confess, I do that sometimes. Do you do that? I know that some of you struggle with that. Sometimes I sit down with you and I have the great joy of hearing the difficult things that are going on in your life. And I also grieve because I thought, how long has this person been carrying this by themselves? But we are not meant to live this alone. When we're sick, when things are difficult, when illness is upon us, it says call for the elders, call for others, invite other people into this. So what we see here is it says, call for the elders that they would anoint you with oil and that they would pray for you. In this picture, I think what we're gonna see is that James is narrowed in on a specific kind of picture here. And then he broadens the next verse, calling us all to confess our sins and to pray for one another for healing. But in this picture that's very particular that James gives us, there's a couple of things I want us to see. Presence is important here. We are embodied creatures. Part of this worldview that I challenged at the beginning is that I think we think of the physical and we think of the spiritual. And for a long time in history and philosophy, we've separated those far too much. The Bible doesn't actually do that. Body and spirit are not meant to be separated. So when we are sick, we need the presence of other people. It's valuable to hear the prayers that are being prayed for us. It's valuable to be touched, to be anointed, to be set apart. God is demonstrative in the way that he works in the world. And it's because we are physical demonstrative beings. So when we're sick, we don't just ask for prayer. It's great to have people pray for us afar, but we need people to come into our space, to touch us, to pray for us, so we can hear their prayers, so we can see their presence, because we get to be Jesus to one another in a profound and bizarre way. So it says, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church to pray for you and to anoint you with oil. Now, as an elder and a pastor, I wanna confess this is a challenging verse for me to preach. What this is not saying is that there's some holy, unique power that elders have. But what we will see is that the prayers of a righteous man are powerful. 
And as one of your elders and pastors, we have been set apart by you as a church body. Not because we have it all together, but because you have seen us striving to submit our lives to the Lord, to pursue holiness and faithfulness and righteousness. And you've seen that we have gifts to shepherd this flock that the Lord has entrusted to us. So it's not because there's something special or unique about the elders in some kind of power sense, but because this is what we've been called to. To serve you as a church body. To get up in the middle of the night and to go pray for someone who's sick in the hospital. To interrupt our evenings, to go lay hands on someone when life is overwhelming. And I'll confess as I study for this, I would love for us as elders to do this more. I'm grateful that we do get to do that. That lately, even this month, that there's been a couple times now where we've, after the service, prayed for someone who's sick or despairing or overwhelmed, who's reached out to us for prayer. So Church Bright, please reach out to us. And we wanna make ourselves more available at the same time. If there's ways where it feels difficult to know how to contact us for prayer, let us know that. But if you're sick, if you want prayer, if you're overwhelmed, please reach out to us. Call me or text me, not in the next three months, but after that. But if you're sick and you need prayer, call Cam, call Isaac, text them, hit them up, email them, grab another elder that you know, grab one of our women's ministers or one of our staff members. They would love to come with you and we would love to pray for you in accordance with James 5. We want to be a church that prays more and more and more and practices what the scriptures say. I think there is something really powerful about all that's laid out here. Not because it's a ritual, that if we do X, Y, and Z, it happens, but because God's called us to it. I think there is a tension here as we talk about this anointing with oil. This is something that I think has been missed a lot in the church. There's a couple of things I'm gonna highlight here. This is the first one where the church has just gotten it wrong often. There's not something magical or special about oil. We as Protestants, as Baptists, don't believe that there are these things that have this special power in and of themselves. But that's been a practice of the church and still is in certain sections. Oil is not what heals or saves people. But this is merely a symbol. This oil has always been used in the Old Testament and even in the New as a way of anointing, of setting someone apart for a certain practice. In this case, the oil is just a means of demonstrating before God that we are setting this person apart before the Lord and asking him to heal them. So there's no power in this oil. There's no that specialness in it and of itself, but it is a means in which we as the people of God set apart this person for healing and ask God to work uniquely. Here's why I just want to stop and give us a little theology, okay? Of spirit and prayer. We are Christians. And so we believe that God works powerfully, supernaturally, spiritually. So we're not naturalists thinking that there's nothing outside the laws of nature that happens, but we're also not magicians. Okay, and, and I think often we want to err on one of these two sides. We think, well, like, God set things in motion, I'm just going to live this life. 
Or we can get caught up in making sure that we do X, Y, and Z just perfectly. And if we do X, Y, and Z perfectly, then God has to do it. And if we don't, then he won't, and that's our fault. And that's just not what this text says. Whether it's who prays or how they pray or whether they're anointed with oil, we need to be eager to follow these rhythms and these purposes. But them and themselves do not bring about healing. It is Jesus Christ who heals. Amen. So what we see here is that we are called to pray for one another. to intercede for one another. See, James has zoomed in on this picture here. And the next thing that he says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick well. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick well. And I told you there's a lot of pitfalls for us to miss here. And when we talk about prayer, there is a need for us to have an expectation that God will work. Prayer is not just some kind of ritual that God wants us to do that has no implication for his acting in the world. But in God's bigness, he is able to hold all things in his hands. All powerful, almighty, sovereign over the universe. And yet he brings about his will and his purpose by actually real, truthfully working through the means he calls us to do. Prayer is powerful because God has made it so and he works through it. And so we should have faith for it to act, for it to do something. But what is significant in this text is not the, cont- the kind of prayer we have, but it's the object of our prayer. I think often this text has been deeply hurtful to people because it's been taken out of context in some kind of lie that has said, well, if you believe enough, God will do this, has come about. And so maybe you've been prayed for and it didn't happen, and what you heard explicitly or intrinsically was it would have happened. Healing would have happened if you just believed harder. I'm sorry for that. That is not what the scripture is saying. No, the Bible is not concerned with the fervency or depth of our faith. In fact, the scriptures say profound things like the faith of a mustard seed, the smallest kind of seed there is, can move mountains, can do incredible things. Because it's not the amount of faith you have, but it's the object of our faith, which is significant. See, we put our faith not in the formulas that we do, not in the spiritual rituals that we do, not in our own good behavior, not in having things right, but we put our faith in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. That he has ascended in heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is endowed with all power and majesty. That all evil is already underneath his feet, Amen. So he is the object of our faith. He is perfectly able. So the object of our faith is important. There's mystery here that we don't totally understand, but the call here is not to challenge ourselves to just be more absolutely confident in what we pray, but it's to trust more deeply in the one we pray to. 
It's not about how fervently we believe, but how deeply we trust the one that we're believing in. So what are you trusting in when you pray? Are you looking to Jesus? Or are you looking to something else? Just take that question with you this week and wrestle with it. The next verse, it says, and if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. It's a real unique line, a challenging line. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. The key word here is if. If. So there's two extremes that I want us to navigate. This text is saying that sometimes sin is the cause or reason of sickness. We see that here. We see that in other places in the scriptures. We see that in Jesus' ministry. It was normative in the Jewish society to expect that sin might be the cause of someone's sickness. I just want to name this. That's strange in today's society. We don't often think that way, but it is clear here in the scriptures. But if is also really important because this is not normative either. If you're sick, it's not one-to-one ratio. Sickness is not caused always by sin. Often, most of the time, sickness is caused by the brokenness of this world. So I want you to hear as we wrestle with this, that if you're sick today, maybe you've been struggling with sickness for a long time, Jesus is not saying it's your fault, and neither am I. This text is not putting that on you. I imagine you're sick because this is a dark and broken and dying world. And we want to grieve with you in that. But we also want to wrestle with hard things that the scriptures say. And there is a real reality that sometimes sickness is a product of our sin. And this is not just some kind of psychological situation where we're so grieved with guilt or shame or some kind of uh, psychological brokenness that it physically manifests. I think that's definitely true. But sometimes just sickness that is brought upon us by totally different means is because we are living in sin. And God's not doing this maliciously. God is not cruel. I just want to be honest, sometimes I, I, I struggle with that. It's, the world's so dark, I think we can believe a lie that God's cruel. Satan is evil, is what it is, and he's seeking to destroy, but God is good. And he uses what the enemy means for evil to bring about good. So this kind of sickness here is something, something that someone's delivered by and from through prayer and confession. There is healing from this sickness and there's forgiveness from the sin. So sometimes sickness is a product of sin and that sickness is a means that God is using to get our attention. So please hear me tonight. Before I move on, if you are sick, do not hear a lie that it is your fault. But maybe you're here tonight and you know that there is sin that you have been living in, that you've been wrestling with, 
that's been ruling your life, if there is sickness, unhealth, physical or spiritual, God is inviting you to experience deliverance and maybe challenging you to bring that darkness to the Lord. So verse 16, it, it zooms out. So James has been zoomed in on this kind of, I think, particular picture of what this can look like. And James very helpfully zooms out. He says, hey, what we're talking about practicing here is something that we need to regularly practice with one another. Verse 16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So James is doubling down. And what I want to see tonight, one of the reasons why I talked about prayer and confession for healing is because I think for myself and often in the church, we have unhelpfully and unbiblically separated those two. But there's a way that Jesus is concerned about physical and spiritual healing so much that he calls for us to pray for both of those regularly. And that confession should be intertwined in that. Sin kills it always damages and kills our souls and sometimes it even damages and destroys our bodies. Do we view sin in such a matter? See, calls for confession like this, strong language about sin is not because God is malicious or capricious. He doesn't do things arbitrarily. He doesn't call us to do things arbitrarily, but he does it because sin destroys us. He loves us and delights us and wants to call us out of the darkness in our life. But what strikes me about this text is that this seems like a real casual comment by James in some ways. Therefore, get together, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I imagine this being a regular practice that he expects the church to follow. One of the things I've been challenged by, one of the reasons why I called uh, or I chose this text to preach tonight is because I've been really wrestling with this. The role of healing and prayer and confession, how these work together. I think confession is something that is incredibly helpful because we believe in a God who delivers us, who delivers us from sin and from death, from sickness of soul and sickness of body. James is providing a way to approach healing that is deeply intertwined. And this practice of confession, I think it's something that's been lost in the church. Maybe it's been practiced poorly at other times in the history of the church. And instead of redeeming it, I think in a lot of ways, we have just left it behind. When I say the word confession, I imagine you think of two things. Either it's something that you don't practice at all, or it's something that you do only when things are really bad when there's some kind of sin that's just been overwhelming you and you don't know what else to do and you just need to tell somebody. But I think what the scriptures lay out is that it's a regular and normative practice. So I wanna talk about what could confession look like and why should we regularly practice it? How does it bring healing to our soul and to our body? First of all, the scriptures talk about sin as being something that ensnares us, entwines us, cripples us, makes us sick. It wounds us. 
The scripture uses language that we are born spiritually dead and that through Jesus we are made spiritually alive. And I think sin, after we are followers of Jesus, is like being raised up, resurrected. Imagine that you are miraculously healed in a hospital and then you start doing things to your body that are physically deeply harmful. That's the picture of sin in the spiritual life. Remember, we can't separate. We're not supposed to separate the physical from the spiritual when we read the scriptures. And so as we confess sin, it brings healing to our souls. We are freed from sin when we are brought into light. We are reminded of the truth and grace of the gospel as we confess our sins to others. And I think also when we confess sin, it helps us to name it and to surrender it. Sometimes I can just walk around with a sense of failure or sinfulness in my life. But when I actually stop and meditate on what's going on in my heart and in my mind, I realize, okay, there's a few things that I've really missed this week that I need to bring to the Lord. And as I do that, I just feel a lightness because I've been able to repent of that thing, but also I've realized I'm not a total failure in all of life, but there's just some brokenness that I need to bring to the Lord. And when we confess, this is necessary for us to be aware of what's going on in our hearts and our minds. If we're gonna have a regular practice of confession, then we have to pause every once in a while and look inwardly and bring our life to the Lord. Not just where are we abusing a substance or in outright anger with our spouse or mishandling money, but where are we just being prone to anger in our lives? Where are we looking at things to bring comfort to us when the Lord should? When are we being hot-tempered or quick to speak? When are we being a little greedy with our own stuff? See, as we are aware of those things, it doesn't bring us to condemn ourselves, but to be free, to know that, hey, this is death that I'm starting to walk in. I wanna bring it out as quickly as possible. Confession should never bring condemnation or shame. It should always bring healing and wholeness. And so if you're here and when you have practiced confession, it has been met with condemnation. I am sorry. That is not how it's meant to be. So we need to be in regular rhythms of confession, but for that to happen, church by, we need to know how to receive confession. So some practical tips on how to receive confession. One, I would encourage us when you are gonna meet with someone for prayer confession, that you just take some time to think about the character of Jesus. How does he treat people? How does he treat people who are in sin? How does he treat people who are broken? How has he treated you? But then practically, when you sit down and someone confesses big or small struggles in their life, sins that they've committed, temptation that they struggle with, listen. Listen before you do anything else. Be present with them. Hear them. Secondly, lament. Sin is something we should grieve. It is not of God, and it is something that he is removing and defeating, has defeated. Lament with that person. They're bringing this stuff to you because they know it's wrong. They'll need you to immediately tell them how bad it is. They need you to grieve with them. Thirdly, remind them of the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel. 
that there is healing for them. There is deliverance for them. That they are not seen by their sin or their brokenness, but they are seen as sons and daughters of Jesus. Sons and daughters of God. Brothers and sisters of Jesus. Reminding them of their identity as saints, not as sinners. Pray for them. Pray for them. And lastly, I would encourage you to reciprocate. I think confession happens best when it's both ways. It's not like one of you confesses someone else, but confess your sins one to another is what it says. Reciprocate. And if this is something you long for, as I'm talking about this, you're like, oh, that sounds so great. There's all this sin that I've been keeping locked up. There's all this struggle that I've been fighting alone. I'm eager to have someone bear with me. Then set the tone in that. Share deeply, share vulnerably. Invite them to reciprocate. And here's what you shouldn't do. Don't solve their problems. Don't give them trite answers. Be willing to sit with them in the difficulty and the darkness and the brokenness. Presence is so much more powerful sometimes. Because in these moments, we get to embody the presence of Jesus. To remind them that no matter what they confess, we are still eager to be in their presence. And Jesus is eager to be in their presence. This kind of confession brings healing to our souls and to our bodies. Is this a regular practice of yours? It's not in my life as much as I'd like. I'm not eager to loathe myself or to condemn myself, but I am eager to walk hand in hand with brothers in Christ more and more. I think this is a deeply powerful and valuable thing that brings freedom and wholeness. Take this week to ask yourself, when was the last time you did confess your sins, your temptations, your broken desires to someone? When was the last time you reminded that you're not alone in these challenges? What steps might God be calling you to take to live life more fully and more deeply? because there does seem to be a clear tie to sin and healing, both spiritual, but also physical. See, the next verse, it says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful as it works. It seems clear from this text that sin doesn't only only make people sick sometimes, but the absence of sin empowers our prayers. And this does not mean that the more holy someone is, the more power they have over the Lord. We can get things twisted so easily. I think what it does mean is the more eager and quickly someone lives their life vulnerably and transparently and humbly before God, the more natural it is for them to call to him and to ask him for things, the the deeper intimacy and familiarity they are with the Father. There is a real sense in the scriptures that sin brings distance between us and God. As far as Jesus, it doesn't have to, but we, if we do not invoke our God-given right to forgiveness, then the more sin that we're living in, unconfessed, unrepentant, it puts a distance between us and the Father. Not eternally, but presently. So as we're praying for one another, we confess our sin to have healing personally, but also so that we can be intentional and powerful in our prayers for one another.
Because lastly, where I want to end is where this text ends. There is power in prayer. I just want to confess, I struggle to live in this reality a lot of times. I like science, like I said. It's normal for me to think naturally about the world. A lot of you are really educated, and that's great. But I just wonder how often we live in the reality that prayer is powerful. It actually works. It changes our reality. It heals. It binds up not just souls but bodies. There's a lot of things I don't have answers for on how these things work. But what I do know is that God has called us to live in this way and we should be obedient to do so. We don't have to understand his means to practice them. And so what he does is he calls us to pray for one another with pure hearts and pure minds because of the work of the blood of Jesus in our lives. And as he does that, we should be expectant for God to work powerfully in our midst, to heal people, to heal people's bodies and to heal people's souls. So where I want to end tonight is, are we practicing that? Are we eager to ask for prayer when we're sick, when we're suffering, when we're hurting, when we're ill? Are we quick to pray for others, expectant for God to move? And just practically, church, I just want to, like, is that what your life looks like? When was the last time you prayed for someone for healing? What did you expect that to do? And again, there's no condemnation, but there is an invitation here. An invitation for me and for you to live more expectantly in the power that Jesus promises in prayer. Because the picture here is that Elijah prayed a man just like us. The, the characters in the Bible are real people just like me and you. And God has done profound things in them. And he ends with is equally a miraculous picture. That when we pray and we pursue people who are far from Jesus, who are running from Jesus, who are oppressed with sin and don't even realize it, that he is faithful to deliver them. Through us often. God brings healing in body and spirit. What do you need this healing today? What do you need to pray for someone else? And are we living expectantly? Because Jesus Christ has done the work. The reason why we need to practice this is because it proclaims his coming. It demonstrates that he has already defeated sin and death. That he is a God who delivers and heals. It's a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality that has already been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Pray with me and ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, we thank you that you are a God who heals. And though often we may groan and wonder why not us and why not today, Father, you are with us in that groaning and that grieving. And Father, in our waiting, you give us hope for healing both the now and the promise of healing in your kingdom that's coming. 
Lord, be with those who are here tonight who are weary of sickness. Comfort them and draw near to them. For those who are burdened and heavy laden by sin and brokenness in their life, comfort them and draw near to them. Call them to repentance and freedom. Lord, thank you that your healing is a manifestation of your love for us. Lord, I confess, I don't understand why you heal sometimes and not others. Father, we are eager for your kingdom to come and we pray that it would come in full, Lord. Come, Jesus, and until that day, stir us to be people of prayer and confession. The Iron Sea Church would look more and more like your kingdom as we practice these things. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ.